What is living in lockdown like? As the world tries to make sense of the coronavirus and South Africa is knee-deep in a government-initiated lockdown, we'll be hearing from different voices what they're up to and how they're handling living in the lockdown. Well, someone who's had a colourful political career and regularly written columns for six national newspapers in the UK, including the Evening Standard, The Guardian and The People, clearly has his eye on the world. He'd definitely have a strong opinion on the effects of COVID-19 on our living and the way that things are about to change, if they haven't already. David Meller, British broadcaster, barrister, former politician and a consultant in the world of business today. I'm very honoured to have him join me. So, David... Um, where are you locked down, for starters? Um, Gareth, we're, 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 we're locked down in a very charming place, uh, overlooking one of uh, Cape Town's most pleasant beaches at Clifton. So, uh, so you're not suffering? I, 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 no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not suffering in that sense. And in fact, funny <laughs> enough, although having to try and do 10 kilometers walking along a 50 uh, meter terrace is a bit baffling but uh, apart from that i'm in good shape <laughs> well i'm glad to hear it a lot of people are finding some solace in exercising um others are are keeping connected thanks to all these um these technological innovations that we can now make use of but are you are you feeling connected to all your compatriots in the in the uk at the moment because obviously they're going through quite a different experience to what many of us are are experiencing now <laughs> Yes, I mean, I do a radio broadcast to LBC every day. Hmm. Uh, I um, have four newspapers online, and I watch Sky News. So you're never out of uh, the British circuit, as it were. And uh, yes, I'm not appreciating some of the news from the UK, where the virus appears to be hitting very hard at the moment, with no obvious signs that it's going to stop anytime soon. Well, there are a lot of stories that we're hearing, obviously, through the same news channels, and some of these are quite disturbing. I think most people were, were, were quite astonished that the Prime Minister should have ended up in, in hospital in intensive care. And, and for a while there, I think a lot of people were very worried. But, but this virus seems to have polarized people uh, in respect of how we should be dealing with it and, and how perhaps it should have, yeah. should have been dealt with. Do you have strong feelings about whether or not people have made dreadful mistakes or whether they've gone down the right, right route? Well, I think they have made mistakes. But then everyone makes mistakes. You know, when I was Minister of Health, we were trying to deal with the AIDS virus. And, of course, the one consoling thought, you know, the AIDS virus also, we believe, came from animals, in this case, chimpanzees in Africa. Mm. Uh, and a lot of the early predictions about it sweeping through not just the needle-sharing drug community or the gay community, but also through the heterosexual community, have largely not been borne out. And I carry that as some consolation, uh, and therefore some of the direr predictions about this one, uh, well, I hope will be wrong. But, I mean, if, 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 I, 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 my, um, uh, my stock in trade is strong opinion, so let me give you a few, okay? Go on. First of all, this is the third virus to come out of China, and it comes out of these insanitary markets that the Chinese have, where all manner of wild animals are kept in appalling conditions and then eaten. This one seems to derive from bats. Now, there are those who say it escaped from this, um, uh, th this experimental station just outside Wuhan. But yes, these wet markets, although there's nothing wrong with a wet market as such. All a wet market is is a place where fresh food is stocked and they dampen it down by chucking water over it. You know, we have 
not quite as crude as that. We have wet markets in London. I go to one when I'm in London every Saturday and buy my fish. Mm. What is awful is the exploitation of animals. There's little doubt that these viruses escape from bats. And the Chinese uh, have not covered themselves with glory in failing to admit this, taking some weeks before they would acknowledge what was happened, even threatening to, to prosecute doctors who blew the whistle. And um, now they're even lending credibility to some suggestion that this was all a dastardly American plot uh, to uh, create this virus and dump it in China. So I think the first conclusion we have to make is the Chinese have got to be held to account for this because, you know, as a friend of mine in the scientific community said to me just the other day, the worry is not so much this virus, but what is the next one? Yeah. Bearing in mind that the Black Death bumped off one in two of the people who got it. You know, this one is kinder than that. But the next one might not be. Well, I think on that note, the, the, the China must pay story. I mean, we've seen horrible stories uh, from, from out of China, them trying to silence people early on in, the, in the, uh, the spread of this disease. And when people first became aware of it, we've also seen uh, this, this huge schism now between the WHO and the Trump administration. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Because the WHO yes. have been accused of being very pro-Chinese and helping the Chinese government to propagandize this disease to their, in their favor. I mean, I don't know that they've necessarily done that, but I certainly think the WHO swallowed Chinese lies very readily. And one of the lies they swallowed was that this was not transmittable between uh, human beings, which was manifestly wrong. Mm. I'm not impressed. I know I shouldn't say this, perhaps. But, you know, Ethiopia is little better than a client state of uh, China. Right. And to have an Ethiopian who was a minister, the foreign minister of Ethiopia, but not a doctor, even though, as I understand it, he had some connection with the research community, asks for trouble. What you want is a doctor who stands above the fray and can call the game objectively. This is and Dr. Dr. Tedros that you're talking about. This is Dr. Yeah. Dr. Tedros, yes. Who isn't, he's not a doctor of medicine. He hasn't practiced <laughs> as a medical doctor. Right. Look, I have, I have no time for Donald Trump, okay? Let's be sure. quite clear about this. I'm just amazed that a person as bizarre as him could have ever become American president. But, but I, hope my apolog I hope I'm not sitting on the fence too much. For you. no, no, you're, being, you're being much too mediocre here. Anyway, anyway um, what, what we're saying is that, 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 um, that Trump, but you see, even Trump doesn't get everything wrong. Yeah. I mean, he got it hopelessly wrong. When you remember, I mean, he should go down in history against that if that ever comes out. He called the, 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 the coronavirus uh, a hoax. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yes, well, that's I do. Appalling. Yeah. But he hasn't got wrong this business about uh, the WHO. The WHO was slow off the mark, accepted Chinese lies, and they can't get away from that. And I think, you know, it's too much of a coincidence that, A, they accept Chinese lies, be the head of the WHO is a minister from a government that's you know lies at the feet of uh, lies at the feet of um, of of uh, China uh, so much. I mean the you know the WHO needs to be above the fray and needs to appoint someone of proven integrity and who is also an outstanding uh, doctor who the whole world can respect. And this guy Tedros is definitely not that. Now, what do you think of the of the government in in Britain's reaction to? this virus and the way that they've they've positioned themselves the the measures that they've taken 
you were health secretary, as you mentioned already, under Margaret Thatcher. And, and now we have a conservative government again. And, and some people are saying, well, they didn't do enough. Other people are saying they've done too much. It's starting to become a bit of a police well, state. What do you think? Well, I think that, first of all, let's deal with the, the beginning of the virus. Uh, I, I, I think for how they have responded to the virus, uh, you know, if I was a schoolmaster, I would say five out of ten could do better. And why do I say that? First of all, because um, they seemed in two minds when this virus crept up upon them. They weren't sure whether to go for this thing called herd immunity, where, you know, if 60% of the population catch it, then, you know, you don't get it coming back again. The problem is they soon became to appreciate um, that if 60, by the time 60% of the country got it, 200,000 people would be dead. And that wasn't a great idea. So subsequently having never, they say, adopted that policy, but having not adopted full-heartedly the policy of mass testing, they finally got on to mass testing because one of the problems with this disease in the UK is we don't know how many people have got it. Right. So a whole lot of frontline workers are being kept, uh, are, you know, are sort of putting, keeping themselves at home uh, for no better reason than that there aren't the tests available. And it, I don't believe that in these situations... Ministers should be reckless. Our health secretary, Matt Hancock, said the other day there would be 100,000 tests hmm. by the end, 100,000 tests a day by the end of the month. Well, now, where are we? 13 days from the end of the month? My maths is never my strong point. And yesterday they did 18,000 tests. You and I might think, hmm, not much chance of hitting that target. He still hasn't admitted that that target is unrealistic. Uh, by the same token, however, let's be quite clear about this, other things have gone quite well. They've built these field hospitals in no time at all, which is why when you can build a, you know, an all-singing, all-dancing field hospital as quickly as we did, why on earth can't they arrange to have hospital gowns and all the protective equipment that NHS workers need? Why can't they arrange to have those readily available? It's not rocket science to make a gown. But the mm. problem is that they haven't done that. And I mean, the health secretary had to say this morning, it may be that some hospitals will run out of gowns over this weekend. I mean, come on, sorry, not good enough. Well, contrast that with what we have done in South Africa, where our government were quick to react to their credit, but where we likely have an even more overwhelmed healthcare system without COVID-19. Now we're, we're staring down the barrel of what might be an even uglier situation, or that perhaps you know, based on some of the figures from other countries with warm climates might not be as bad. We don't really have definitive information yet. And I think that the cautious approach is probably, in some people's opinion, the right one. Yes, I don't want to comment on the South African situation. I'm a guest here and I'm no expert on it. All right. Um, so, you know, I, I, but I do think that we have to have sympathy with the government, which has to deal with so many people living in conditions where it's impossible for the kind of distancing that is possible in a country where everyone's got decent accommodation. So I, I, I sympathize with them. But certainly in locking us all up, I mean, I'm now looking across this wonderful beach and there's nobody, nobody on it. So I think hats off to the people of South Africa, at least the ones in our vicinity. Mm. They do seem to be taking all this seriously and they're right to do so. 
Well, there are lots of other things I'd like to talk to you about. For example, you're a, you're a classical music and opera critic for The Mail on Sunday. And you, you, had, yes. you had a show, or do you still have a show on Classic FM as well? I do, yes. Ah, very good. Um, you're much in demand. I've had, had that for 20 years, so there you well, are. There we are. Well, I'm, I'm glad I picked up on that. I would have been, it would have been remiss of me to leave it out. It's quite a big deal. And then um, you, you also have uh, the, the distinction of being a... a Football task force uh, governor, uh, you're, you're, you're some kind of chairman of the government's football task force. How does that yes, work? Yes, but that was some years ago now, sadly. Okay. Um, but that was, um, that was at the beginnings of the last Labour government. Oh. The whole idea of that, as someone who's very keen on football, and in fact, I used to broadcast on football for the BBC. And you're a Chelsea also, supporter. Yes, I'm afraid so, yes. And I also, <laughs> but then we don't bring that up in civilized company, do we? But, and, uh, and also, um, I, um, I, I wrote a column for the London Evening Standard for right. 10 or 12 years about football. So I've always loved football. And the whole idea of the football task force, so it's a good few years ago now, was to look at issues in the game relating particularly to fans. I mean, for instance, when before our, my task force was set up, mm-hmm. um, you couldn't have, you couldn't be guilty of racist observations if there was only one person making them. Hmm. You had to have more than one. Well, plainly ludicrous. And uh, <laughs> there, are, there, are, there are a whole lot of things like that where what, <clears throat> what we tried to do was get the game to be more conscious of the experience of fans. And one of the things that is not true any longer, I'm happy to tell you, but which was true then, is that, you know, there were lots of talented black players on the pitch not so many black people in the stands. And that was because of um, fears of racist behavior by fans. When I started at Chelsea, uh, I saw my first game at Chelsea 50 years ago this year, actually. I hate to tell you. And, you know, in, this, in the 70s, although it wasn't <clears throat> a bad time for Chelsea, we won the FA Cup, we won the Cup Winners' Cup, the European Cup, Cup, that kind of thing. The racism was appalling to the point that I actually left Chelsea for a number of years. And then when Ken Bates took over Chelsea in 1982, he, I was a local MP for the next door constituency to where the ground is. And he said, come back and help me. I want to clean this club up. And I did. And I had what were called director's privileges for all the time Ken was there, over 20 years. And these were years when um, what Chelsea has become is a model of anti-racism when it used to be uh, there used to be a, 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 a great deal of racism. When you look at the Chelsea team, I mean, it reflects the best of a whole number of nations. And that's why Mrs. Thatcher used to think that Chelsea, uh, that, sorry, that football was, was ha- epitomized everything that was worst about the British nation. You know, that was her strong conviction. And I can understand in a way why she thought it. Um, now, when you look at, say, the England team, a multiracial team, everyone working well together, all of the guys, whatever their color and racial background, proud to wear the shirt. You know, I remember all the black power stuff in America. Yeah. These guys are proud to wear the shirt, don't feel they're being prejudiced against. So from having been an embarrassment often to the civilized world, English football has now become, you know, rather an example of how in a multiracial society, people can work together to the advantage of all. Now, 
I think you, you, you're probably um, missing football at the moment. So are you filling that gap with other things? Um, are you keeping yourself amused with some reading, some, some news? Yes. You're I've, obviously I've, working. I've, I've been reading a book about Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I tell you what, you couldn't make it up. You seriously could not make it up. And I've been um, – and, and every evening in our little lockdown here, where there are ten of us, uh, I, before supper – uh, five or six days out of seven, uh, they asked me to do a little musical show. So uh, I choose a piece of music, yeah. and we, we, everyone listens to it. Mobile phones are shut off; no talking is allowed. And then, and and then, yeah, you should come over. And then I talk. I talk about uh, the music, and I invite comments. And uh, yeah. ah, you know, I haven't been sacked yet, and we've been going for. <laughs> Four weeks, so I guess I must be doing something right for a change. Oh, that, that, it sounds like having you there is a real win. Well, I mean, look, I, we're very lucky to be here. We came to South Africa at the end of February on a holiday, long-planned holiday, and I went mm. to uh, you know, a game reserve. I love the game reserves in South Africa. I set about drinking a bit of the South African wine, which I also very much enjoy. Good. And you know, we had not, we'd intended then to go back uh, a fortnight later, but um, then, you know, our host said, well, why do you want to go back? And my two sons said to me, um, why come back, Dad? Yeah. You're not missing much. And, of course, in this day and age, you can do pretty much all you have to do um, online, etc. So, um, And while I don't think of myself as an old crock, I- I'm in danger age. And uh, when when my dear father, just before he shuffled off this mortal coil... He said to me, I'm not going to leave you much, but I am going to leave you blood pressure. And that's what the old blighter did. So I've always had a struggle with blood pressure, which is well medicated. But uh, my doctor said to me, you know, this virus particularly likes to attack people who have had a history of blood pressure. So he said, if you can stay in South Africa, that might be your best bet. So here I am until they chuck me out. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're in good health and that you're keeping everyone there amused and that you're, you're busy and stimulated. I, I'd just like to refer to one serious thing that, that I feel you could add some, some ideas to and perhaps provoke some reaction from some people. You were, you were quite a prominent minister in, in the law and order legislation arena when yes. you, you were Police and Criminal Evidence Act leader in your career yes. as a lawyer and, and in, in the Home Office. Um, what do you think seriously about the the limiting of people's liberties during this time by government, which has mostly been accepted because people understand the seriousness of this. But is there a concern, because we all know that once government take these things away, it's a lot harder to get them back. Is there a concern on your part? Two hundred percent, maybe three hundred percent. There's a concern. Yes, there is. (laughs) Yeah, the the old tag of the ancients, Chris Custodiet, who shall protect us? from our protectors, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, my experience as a criminal lawyer, as a Home Office Security Minister for five years, taking the Police and Criminal Evidence Act through uh, Parliament, which I'm pleased to say that was 1984. Right. And, you know, it hasn't been changed in all that time. And one of the things it did, for instance, was to insist that there should be a tape recording available of police interrogations of suspects because... Um, you know, there were plenty of people who thought, including indeed I myself when I was a barrister, that the police were inclined to gild the lily a bit and, mm. uh, you know, not above distorting a few answers if it suited them. Right. Now, I, I'm in favor of the police, of course. We have to have a police force, and the better the police force, the better the society. But what you do not do 
is give the police powers which they can then abuse. And there have been lots of examples of abuse. Um, you know, one chief constable, the trouble with the UK police is 42, 43 different police forces in England and Wales. So, you know, there's bound to be a clown running one of yeah, them, if absolutely. not several of them. And, you know, this guy was saying, oh, you know, if people weren't careful, they'd be going through people's supermarket trolleys and deciding what was an essential purchase and what wasn't. Sorry, that's not why you have a police force. And even today, they've just published a list of things, do's and don'ts. And one of the don'ts is, you know, it's, you can't go uh, to a paint shop and buy a pot of paint to paint your back bedroom or your kitchen. Why ever not? Yeah. This is ludicrous. But, you know, the, 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 the men in uniform have to be watched, okay? Because too many of them uh, enjoy their little brief authority. And uh, uh, there was a famous Irish playwright called Brendan Byrne uh, who came out with this observation, which I've always treasured, and I see it to be contained in essential truth. He said, there's no situation so terrible that a policeman can't make it worse. <laughs> I can't think of a better way to end this discussion, and I hope we'll have some more. Lovely. Well, I've enjoyed it thoroughly, too. Thank you, David. Talking to you and listening to the ocean. What in the world could be better? I I wish I had your view, but I'm very happy to have had your time. So thank you for for spending some of it with me.